Hi, I'm Angela Lucier, a professional public speaker, seven-time author, two-time TEDx speaker, and CEO and founder of the Speaker Sisterhood, a network of public speaking clubs for women. And I'm Dr. Jolie Hamilton, a research psychologist, best-selling author, TEDx speaker, and ASEC certified sex educator. Together, we're the hosts of Claim the Stage, a podcast about speaking and sisterhood. If you've been a fan, you know I've been doing this show solo, and it's been all about public speaking for years. Well, that all changes now. Well, you're still talking about speaking on stage, but now we're also going to focus on the three things that you need to make an impact, your voice, confidence, and sisterhood. This show is a training ground to go from dreaming to creating. Right. And we'll still be doing interviews with expert guests. Plus, you'll also get more personal stories and insights from us as well. I'm really excited to see where this goes. Me too. And slightly freaked out. Yeah, me too. Welcome to the next chapter of Clay on the Stage. Hi, how are you? Good. I feel like we should have started recording like 10 minutes ago when we first started talking, but here we are. Yeah, whatever. (laughs) It's always mid-conversation. We could have started last night. Just an overnight, a slumber party episode. Oh my God. Don't, don't, don't make promises you can't keep. Are you, are you saying that you want to do that? I would do that. I once did a workout that I had to run 10 minutes every hour on the hour for a whole 24 hours. So I will do insane things. Okay, I don't want to do that, but okay. I think that, I'm glad let's that you do the did that. Party thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Maybe we could do it on Clubhouse. You know, everyone could just tune in, yeah. and we'll just be like having those. Ra- when I get tired, things get really silly really fast. So I think that could be really fun and, and different. So let's let's talk about that for real. I like it. I just like playing it. the stage slumber party on Clubhouse. All right. Well, I'll put that in the idea folder. Uh, this morning I was shoveling because we got more snow last night. It's like every couple of days we're now getting a few inches of snow. It's February. Nice. Yeah, it's February and the snow is powdery. And I stopped and looked at all the snow on my car and it had a lot of those really cute little snowflakes that are mm-hmm. the kind that like when you put them under a microscope, you're like, how is that possible? Yes. And, yeah. <laughs> I have a microscope for that. You, of course, <laughs> of course you do. I do. I do. I haven't gotten it out this year, but yeah. I mean, oh homeschooling. God. Right. Yeah. Like I think Tor, I gave it to Tor and I gave him his like a first official real microscope when he was like 11. That's the, I think that's everybody's favorite activity. Yeah. Can we do that sometime this winter? Yeah. Okay. yeah let's, I put it on the screen porch so that the snowflakes actually stay frozen. Yeah. And so you're just out there like all bundled up. It's so cool. I haven't actually done it since sixth or seventh grade, but I've thought about it ever since. And sometimes I'll watch YouTube videos of the snowflakes on the yeah. under the microscope just because I love it. And so today I got to see the unmicroscoped version of it on my jacket, and it was just really bringing me a lot of joy. I love that. But what what else happened during the shoveling was I was listening to our episode with Cindy Lee Alves, and I was in a, a shame self judgment spiral. <laughs> Oh, no. (laughs) And I kept on thinking, I love listening to our show. Why am I so critical of myself right now as I'm listening to this? And I, I felt like I'm... I'm not making a good enough, I'm not doing a good enough job of connecting speaking with our topics. And I'm laughing way too much. And I hate my microphone. So all through the show, that's what's going through my mind as I'm listening back. And I have, po- I have, I want counter arguments, counterpoint <laughs> to each of those. And I'll need you to stipulate that you're just wrong. So, 
<laughs> well, this is the the perfectionist, yeah. right? Which is what we're talking about today. But it's also that um, that self hating voice that can come up when you're critiquing yourself. And I know that one of the most disliked activities in speaker sisterhood is when I ask the speakers to videotape themselves and then watch it back, because it brings up all the same stuff that I was experiencing listening back to our show this morning. And so I'd love to hear your thoughts on those topics. Uh, and maybe we can work through them together because I thought, is it going to be helpful if I bring this up or are we just going to like harp on the, the things that are making me feel like I should never record a podcast ever again? <laughs> well, I think saying it out loud though, right? I mean, that's one of the joys of speaker sisterhood is you sit there terrified of the day you're going to have to record yourself yeah, and then you do it and you find out that the, the, the self-hating voices are so the worst part of every interaction around that. Like every other person is going to be spectacular to you. Every other response is going to have at, at the harshest some some comments about like constructive criticism about how, what you could do to change it and make it better. So I think it's important to say it out loud and like say how scary it is and how gross it feels and how like you just said you're in a you were in a shame spiral like. Everybody gets into shame spirals and aren't maybe they're all related to some kind of perfectionism or at least some shoulds, right? Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. mm. Yeah, you got to say it, got to name it. Yeah. And and there may be some truth like there it is possible that I I really care about I mean I know I care about speaking and public speaking and this podcast has been about public speaking for so many years and I do have a concern that listeners are going to go wait what are we talking about and how does this relate to speaking and that's a real question so I want to make sure that I'm in service to the audience by always making sure that that is a question I'm answering up front is how does this relate to speaking and I guess I just want to say <laughs> Um, when it comes to the topic of pleasure, just so I can feel like, okay, I did my job that, and I think, I know I've mentioned this on past pleasure episodes is that when I think about pleasure, I think about how to treat yourself better. And I think about how to feel that it makes you feel better and it makes you think higher of yourself and it makes you more confident in your voice. And then you're more, it makes the whole process of speaking easier. And so I just feel like I needed to say that. <laughs> Yeah, I, I can see why it would feel like a bit of like more of a stretch, too, because the conditioning we get is to is to think of things like public speaking as work. Right. Mm -hmm. They're they're effortful. And we think of them as we categorize them and then we put them into the segment of our life marked work. And so finding pleasure in them may even feel incorrect. Right. But I've seen you. I've seen you on the stage and seen you just like in the zone and experiencing joy from that. So it feels like the overlap is there, but I can see why it would also could simultaneously feel disconnected. Like it like they don't relate to each other. Yeah. It's not totally obvious, but when when we describe it, it is. It's just that most people connect fear with public speaking, not joy. Right. And I think if we can change that conversation, that's a beautiful thing we've been able to do. And I think it'll take more than three or four podcast episodes to do that. But if we can continually keep that in mind as we're going forward with the show and with our lives, maybe that message will resonate over time. And that makes me feel like we're, we're doing the job we're setting out to do. 
it feels really important to me because as long as we stay focused on the fact that fear is the primary emotion related to public speaking, we're feeding it. Like yeah. whichever, whichever thing you're feeding, like, it, and it's good to talk about it. It's definitely great to name it, but I hear people talk about that. And when that's the primary emotion, yeah, it's going to keep coming back up. We have to actually, it's not enough to break a bad habit. We have to insert a new habit. So I loved the idea of tying these two things together. And I think we'll keep tying them closer together. Um, because when I, when, when I tie my speaking to joy and, and pleasure, it's so easy. Like I'll record four podcast episodes for various events in one day. No problem. Mm-hmm. It's like, it's not draining. It's joyful. It's exciting. Um, but that's because I think I've trained myself to think of it as exciting and fun, not not just a thing to get over. Yeah. It's hard. It is hard. And I don't remember who taught me this, but I would say at least 10 years ago, someone said, when you feel fear about getting on stage, see if you can reassign that feeling as excitement because they actually feel the same. And when you can identify it as excitement, it brings a whole new life to the experience. It's not something you're dreading or you have anxiety over. It's actually something that you're looking forward to and you're bringing yourself to it. And it's it's a joyful experience. And that is so true. Every time I have found myself in a space of like, oh my God, what am I doing? Why did I sign up for this? I don't know. What if I fail? What if I fall? All these things, I would be like, you know what? This is actually not a fearful activity. This is an exciting activity. And then everything would shift. And I'd be like, I'm going to have fun with this. I can't wait to see who's out there. I can't wait to have an interaction with them and create an experience for them. And then it would feel so great. Yeah. I mean, that's how you crowbarred me out of the of the closet and onto the TEDx stage. You were oh. like, just it's just it's not fear, it's excitement. And I'm like, oh, it is. And you're you're talking about something that we we actually know this to be true. Emotions don't originate in the brain. The body actually f- has a whole bunch of sensations. Like so, the the body mind connection is so real in this way. The, all those sensations they inform your your emotional state prior. They come before your cognitive reasoning, like what, and I'm naming this feeling, right? And so if we, if we can identify the sensations of excitement and, and name them so that we can even skip over and not just think, I'm not afraid, I'm actually excited. But if we can do that so much that we get to the spot where we identify those feelings of butterflies and jitters as excitement right away, then we can have this real alignment and the, the bi-directional body-mind connection works in our favor, right? Like we can actually feel excited and use that as like a an upward spiral, the opposite of a shame spiral going down, <laughs> we can go up instead into joy and excitement. Yeah. All right. That sounds perfect. Let's awesome. sign, let's sign so up. Let's just that. do that. Yeah. Let's just do that. Okay. Flip it's that fine. switch. Um, I also want to talk about my laughter because I think I've been criticized. I don't know if I'd say the word criticized, but I've been called out before about how much I laugh. I laugh kind of a lot. And one of my friends in high school, when she told me that her grandmother died, I started laughing. And I don't remember that moment, but years later, she brought it up to me and said, yeah, do you remember that time I told you and you just started laughing in my face? And I was like, ooh, I don't I don't remember that, but I feel like that might have happened. And my basketball coach in high school, when things would get really intense and you know, it would be in the last 10 seconds of the game and he'd be like, all right, everybody huddle up. And he'd be going through a play that we were going to do for the last 
the last shot, I would be laughing. And he had called my parents aside a couple of times and said to them, I don't know why Ange is over there laughing. This is a real serious situation. Our, the game is on the line. And my parents would say, well, that's just how she deals with stress. Yeah. And so when I listen back to the show and I'm like, oh my God, I laugh so much. I must sound crazy. <laughs> you don't sound, you don't sound crazy, but you know what? Even if you did, what is crazy? I mean, it's, we're, we're just each adapting. Yeah, I think, yeah, your parents are right. Like, that's one of your stress releases. Yeah. I guess I've just become more aware of it because you're funny and you make me laugh. And I laugh more on the show because I have someone to laugh at. I'm not just going to laugh at myself on the show. That would make me a little worried. Yeah. Like cracking yourself up through the (laughs) whole episode. I'd be like, wow. Yeah, I do think I'm funny, but I don't really laugh as hard at myself as I do at you. And so I think hearing all the laughter brings back those moments of, am I not, am I supposed to be laughing right now? Is it too much laughing? Are people like, why does she keep laughing? (laughs) It's funny that you say that because I just commented to Ken that when I'm recording, I will laugh at things that are funny. I will just laugh. And I've, I've been recording with people who I hear sort of stifle their laugh. I can hear them like pushing it down and it it makes me uncomfortable. I'm like, but I thought we were having a conversation. So I appreciate it. And when it's that stressed laugh, yeah, I mean, that's how you are. I'm not sure outside of wanting to get a hold of your ability to process grief so that you don't laugh in people's faces when someone has died outside of like that kind of laughter. It feels like, it feels like one of your, the ways you can get to know yourself like so if you if you can become aware of it in a quiet way in a in an observational way like oh I'm doing that i must be uncomfortable okay lean in mm-hmm. then lean into the discomfort and say it's it's okay to be uncomfortable and see what's behind the la- like what's on the other side of it cuz yeah. it probably allows you to go deeper into the conversation yeah i agree with that like stress release Yeah. And I was recently telling you about one of my observations I made with online dating. And that is that I can find myself performing for the person that I'm on the date with and laughing at jokes that aren't funny. And I think that goes beyond just trying to get them to like me. It goes into feeling like there's a lot of stress in meeting someone new for the first time. And that's a way of letting that stress out is by just finding a moment where I can insert a laugh that would seem normal. (laughs) And so I do. (laughs) And then, and then that person probably thinks, well, I'm pretty funny, but I'm just like relieving stress. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of, a lot of dudes should probably not think they're quite as funny as they are. (laughs) I mean, you know, I have definitely laughed at a joke that wasn't funny on a date. Mm-hmm. Sure. I think you're I think you're totally naming it. Like, yeah. Yep. Whatever. It's there's discomfort everywhere. Yeah. I think of all the relief valves, that's a good one. Like mm-hmm. uh, in general over like, you know, pulling all my eyebrow hairs out, like that mm-hmm. wouldn't be great. I just learned I have, that that's a real disorder. It's a real disorder and it's hard. I I mean, I have I used to have, I used to chew my hair so much that all my hair was broken. It was all broken, 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 broken. Um, Yeah. Like those kinds of nervous, like trying desperately to mediate all of the input, the wild world we live in. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, coping strategies are on, they're a spectrum, right? Like choosing some that are reasonable is how we get by in a world that is intent in like totally overwhelming. Mm-hmm. Well, I feel better that we talked about it. Yeah. Yeah. It's 
I don't think you laugh too much. I have heard some podcasts where I'm, I'm aware of you being nervous and I hear you laughing and I'm like, it's, it's adorable. It's that, that like little laugh that comes here. I can hear that, but I don't find it off-putting. I find it like, like that's what it is to get to know a podcast host too. Like, mm-hmm. you know how they are, how they show up. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to listen to that, that guy, the teacher in the wonder years. I wouldn't want to listen to him podcasting. Yeah. That wouldn't yeah. be fun. No, no, <laughs> no. I notice that when I'm listening, I can tell when I'm about to laugh because of what I'm saying. I'm like, oh, this is uncomfortable for me to say I'm going to laugh next. And then I do. I'm like, oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> this is weird. <laughs> yeah. So, so which part of you, which, which you is you? Is it the one who's laughing or the one who's watching? I don't understand the question. Yeah. Like, I, well, I mean, like you're aware that you're going to laugh, but do you? You don't stop yourself, but you're aware and you're watching and watching. That watcher, I think, could eventually become capable of, of feeling that discomfort, becoming aware, like, oh, I'm, I'm going to laugh, and then and then move that discomfort into whatever else you want. Like, if the laugh is actually stopping you from asking the harder question, or if the laugh is stopping you from receiving the information, it's possible that that part of you that's watching and is, a, is aware that you're going there, that you're, that you're avoiding something, right? That you're, that that part of you can learn how to interf- intervene, right? Mm. And, and actually go to the harder spot. Yeah. I, think, I don't think you have to rush it. No, I think I do want to go to the harder spot, but the laugh is what is sort of the softener into the harder spot because it takes what could be a, an intense question or a, a really off-putting comment and it softens it and it makes it more platable. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, at least in the cultural milieu that you exist in, it feels like that makes it easier. Yeah. 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 And I could see how sometimes it would feel off for other people. But now you said softener, and all I can think of. <laughs> I know what you're thinking. <laughs> all I can think of is <laughs> Dan Levy in yeah. that skit on SNL. That's it. Oh, my gosh. If anybody missed Dan Levy on SNL, you need to go pause, go the, po- pause the podcast. Yeah. Go. YouTube. Yeah. Go. Yeah, there's a whole skit where he plays a tour guide at Universal Studios. That is just hilarious. We watched it last night and great joy. Yeah, great joy. All right. Well, I guess we can move on from that. Thanks for listening. Oh, you're welcome. (laughs) So what's new? What's new this week for you? Nothing. Nothing. Nothing's new. Everything is old and the same as always. It's not true. But boy, it feels that way. You know what, though? I had a realization. I said that to you last night. I said, nothing's new. I have nothing. There's nothing written down on my card for what's new. But that's because we're at midwinter. It's Imbolc was on February 2nd. It's midwinter. This time of year always for me feels like a deepening and a hibernation. And yet I'm really, really busy. And this is a. I have chosen to do a set of things that makes me have a very packed schedule. So... It's true that I'm doing new things every day and my body wants to hibernate. My body wants to do this deep dive into, like, I like to write books or or big pieces of literature. Like, I like to do that kind of project right now, but it's not what I get to do. Like, I just didn't set this year up for it. So I guess what's new for me is really, like, just staying with what is available in the moment, mm-hmm. just trying to practice, like, nope. I made some decisions. They're not actually in line with like my what I said I wanted this year to be like exactly. But um 
but it's going to be like, it's one semester, it's 13 weeks and it's going to be fine. So what's new is I'm just reading like so many pages every week and my brain is growing all the time. (laughs) Yeah. So you're, you're in it. You're in the the schedule and the plan that you made for yourself and you're working through it every day. Yeah. And it's fine. What about you? What's new for you? Well, as I mentioned on a, a recent podcast that I was feeling burnt out and was worried that I was going down the road of kind of losing it, I took a mini vacation over the weekend. And I, if I looked at my to-do list, it would indicate that I had no business taking a mini vacation because there were a lot of things, not only for work, but just at home that needed to be taken care of. And it's just there's just like a lot of things happening right now but i decided i'm going to put all of that aside and i'm going to take a mini vacation and it was wonderful i didn't have my son over the weekend so i went for a walk which was actually quite short cuz it was freezing outside but it was really nice to just be outside in nature for 20 minutes before my fingers fell off and then i got takeout and i watched the britney spears documentary and I like took a nap and I hung out and I just like I watched Saturday Night Live and I went and got a donut on Sunday morning. I was like, I can't remember the last time I ate a donut. This is so ridiculous. We're staging a donut <laughs> intervention at my house. We have planned your donut intervention. I'm like, that is I, I love that you had a donut and I love that you had a great experience. But I showed all of my children and we're like, they were all appalled that you did not have a Mrs. Murphy's donut. Oh, so we will be bringing you some because oh. they were like, she needs an intervention. I do. I've never had one of those. (gasps) I know. (laughs) Okay. I am bringing you joy as ASAP. Okay. (laughs) I'm all for the joy. And I just, I felt so good just taking 24 hours to do whatever I wanted. And it wasn't even major. It was just chilling out and not thinking about what needed to happen next. It was such a great gift. And I highly recommend it to everybody. And I'll be doing it more frequently because <laughs> it just needs to happen. And I'm the only person who can do it. Nobody else has control over that but me. And I think sometimes I forget that I'm the one who controls my schedule because sometimes it feels like there's just so many priorities and people to help and things to do that I I just forget that that's an option. Yeah, totally. So I watched you because you you um, Instagram lived it and like little clips. And I, I was like, oh, that's what I should have done this weekend. And instead, I worked every single second. So we had complete opposite weekends. I worked every single second of last weekend. And so this weekend, I'm like, oh, no, that's not happening. I'm, I'm taking I'm not I'm going to I'm going to work till like midday on Saturday because I have an appointment. But then Saturday into Sunday, you're right. There, There is the only answer is to shut it down mm-hmm. because this list cannot be finished. They're, they're unfinishable. Yeah. Like not just tasks, projects and inventions and creations. Yeah. So yeah. Better be nice to ourselves. Yeah. And I did feel like I was skipping school. Like I'm just going to run away from this for a day and nobody's going to know. And I'm not going to get a permission slip. I'm not going to tell my parents. <laughs> I'm out of here. <laughs> Did you and skip school when you were in high school? Only twice. Was it a bit like, was it awesome? It was awesome. I went hiking one time. We went up to the Summit House and we, I think we ate lunch up there. And my friend had a convertible and we drove around all day in a convertible. Like, look at us world. We're skipping school. It's only 11 in the morning and we're not at school. And then peak moment. It was, it was huge. And I mean, I felt like 
I'm a badass because I skipped school twice. You know, I've never in my whole like 12 years of schooling ever. I was never late for school once. Wow. <laughs> I feel like that's, that's an accomplishment that I did not get a certificate or a trophy for. So I'm just going to mention it here on the yeah. podcast. Yeah. That is trophy worthy. I was late to high school over and over again because my bus kept being late and I mm. kept getting detention for it, but it wasn't like it was my bus. It was so. So I went and argued my case to my my assistant principal. I, like I, I argued it because I like I didn't want it on my record. Yeah. I don't know where I thought this record was going or who was going to look at it, but I didn't where, want it on my record. Where would you be today if that was on your record? That's what I want. Exactly. I mean, a complete failure, probably. That's, <laughs> probably. that's reasonable to, fi- to figure. Yeah. I never did skip school. I never did it. Oh. Like, I just, I don't, I don't know. It, well, so the person who I married first, I, I also dated in high school. So for my junior and senior year, and his mom was a teacher. So like skipping high school, like if I was going to skip with him, then like she was going to know immediately we would have been in trouble then. So I guess that probably added into it. Probably. Probably. Yeah. I think I'll skip school this week then just, just to do it. Yeah. Okay. All right. Good. Well, uh, let us know how it goes. Let's talk about anything bringing you joy. Oh, I have joy. I have lots of joy. I okay. I have my feelings pillow. Oh yeah, <laughs> this is all, we need to take a picture of this. I know we'll take a picture. My feelings pillow. I like it so much. It's um, it's one of those feelings charts. It's like a wheel of feelings, and I think a lot of people have seen them. Like you see them pop by on Facebook ads and whatever. You know, it starts in the center with like happy, sad, angry, glad, um, and then there's more and more feelings out. And I have wanted one to have around. And I've like, I've had one like stuck to our fridge before, but I don't have any more wall space. I have no more wall space and I have a lot of art on the walls where there is space. So, but then I found a pillow cover. So now I have it in pillow form and now I can squeeze the pillow and I'm really unreasonably happy about it. It's awesome. I love it so much. And you also have your pillow cube. I also have my pillow. I even ordered a second pillow cube for myself. Because I wanted a travel size one because I'm so attached that now I know that realistically I'm not traveling anywhere for a year, but that's how attached I already am to my pillow cube because I have had the first like unbroken sleep of my life. So yeah, my pillow cube and me are, we're buddies. I love it. I got a polka dot pillow cover for my pillow cube. Oh, we'll have to get a picture of that too. Cause I still have no idea what this pillow looks like. And in my mind, it's really awkward awkward looking. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. It's really funny that we're talking about pillows because my first thing I wanted to share has to do with pillows. So stop stealing all my ideas again. (laughs) I told you I'm a little too witchy. And you are to be like it's. I'm not actually that helpful because I'm like, oh, good idea. Pluck. I'll have that one. <laughs> well, mine is a pillow pile, and so I co-sleep with Max, but he's not here every night. He's only here half the week. So when he's not here, I have eight pillows, like yeah. bed bed pillows, that I place all around me and under my knees and under my feet and under my arms, and then I have them under my head. And I wear a hooded sweatshirt and I get into my bed under the blankets, and I have all the pillows around me. and I put my hood on and then all you can see are my eyes (laughs) and then I bring my laptop into my bedroom and I watch Schitt's Creek and I am so happy in my pillow pile watching my show 
and nobody can bother me and it's quiet and I have my humidifier going and my salt lamp and the curtains are closed and it's so quiet and I just melt into my pillows. Oh my God. I forgot about that feeling. Like I don't, I don't do that. And I happen to sleep next to somebody who is a furnace. So there's less pillowing that way. Um, but you're describing what I did when I was a kid and I'd forgotten all about it. My brother and I called them our nests. We would like build our nests on my parents' king-sized bed because they had a TV in their room. So we would each build a nest with all their pillows and then get in it exactly like you were describing in our Snuggie suits. Yes. That's some of my best memories with my brother. So he was four years younger than me. So like, I'm thinking like when he was like four and five and six, when we were just starting to be friends, not just like he's a baby and I'm a kid. Oh, that's good stuff. Yeah, it's the best. Now I'm having joy just from the memory of that. Oh, good. Yeah. I really hope this exercise makes everyone listening consider where their joy is coming from. Like, that's really what I, what I, my goal and my dream is for us talking about this is that they're going to look at their life and go, where's joy showing up for me? Yeah. And I had an email from a friend a couple of days ago saying, I've been listening to your show and here are things that are bringing me joy. And she shared a few things and I was so happy. It was like, yes, yes, that yes. is like, that's a world improvement. Yeah. Notice it, name it. You'll have more of it. Yeah. <laughs> Any, would you have another thing bringing you joy or pleasure? I do. I'm going for pleasure because I I started, I so I, I re-upped my Dipsy subscription and I am obsessed right now. So Dipsy. Yeah, tell everyone about this. Okay. Dipsy is an uh, an, an app um, and you can, you can listen. I think, I think you can also have it on your computer, but um, it's an app. Download it to your phone. It's a pretty reasonable, I think it's like. $7 a month. It's not expensive. Um, and it is audio erotica. And it's and it's more than that, though. It's like, first off, they've done a really good job of including things like condom use in like really sexy ways or including negotiations or, or making sure that there's like ongoing consent in a lot of the stories. So it's erotica that just has this angle that I can actually like, I feel like I'm having good encounters modeled for me while I'm getting off, which is awesome. <laughs> but also there's a wide variety. You can like check off what you're looking for. Are you looking for like um, a couple? Or are you looking for, um, you know, are you looking for he, he or she, she, or are you looking for he, 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 or you, like you can just, you can go for non-binary stuff. You can like look all across these dimensions. You can look for hard edge stuff or more mellow. And because it's not a visual image, there's something really like relaxing and interesting. And like, you can kind of go off of in your own direction. You're creating the image yourself in your mind. It's yeah, it's juicy. And as background music for sex, fantastic. And they have now like guided masturbation. Oh, who knew that was a thing, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. I mean, I've, I have done that as part of like live workshops, but I hadn't realized that they had added this and so, yeah, I am on Team Dipsy right now and I'm not selling it. I just think it's an awesome thing that exists. Yeah, it is. And you gave me a free year of it and I've been enjoying it too. I've only gotten to listen to a few different stories, but my first thought when I listened to it was the production value is excellent. It really is. Because it's, <laughs> it's not just people like reading erotica. No. They're like acting. Yeah. Your, your voice acting it really well. I just listened to um, Leather and Lace and like they nailed it. <laughs> they did a great job. Like I have been in some rooms where this stuff was actually happening and this was spot, like this was amazing. 
Yeah. And they have all the background sounds. The story I listened to was a guy who got off of an airplane and he missed his connecting flight and then meets up with a woman who also met who missed her connecting flight and they had to rent a car together. And then they like end up having sex on the beach and there's the sound of the ocean and you can hear the sound of the engine as they're driving. And it's just, uh, it, you feel like you're there. It's really great. I was telling someone about it and I, I mentioned the production value and they were like, wait, if you were a guy, would you be that guy who's like, yeah, I read Playboy for the articles. <laughs> Nobody. Yeah. yeah. You're that guy. You're that guy. <laughs> the stories are really good. But I think as a podcaster, I do listen to audio. I don't know. It's just, I think that that is reasonable. I wouldn't want it to be like, I wouldn't want it to be flat or scratchy or, or distant or whatever. So I think that matters. That's... And, and they really, you really feel like they put the effort in because I have watched a lot of porn in my life, like a, a lot a, like a lot, a lot. And like good quality pornography, it can be awesome. But, you know, a lot of pornography is just so uh, like doesn't work for me because I, I have these high standards and I recognize the limitations that people are working in when they're making erotic material um, and all of the the limitations of just like trying to figure out what people are fantasizing about. But this it feels like it opens up the doors because they don't actually have to do the things. They just have to make the, the, uh, the audio, audio. I just made up a word, audio, audible. (laughs) They just have to make up the audible experience. And yeah, it feels like they can go much bigger and have like much more wide ranging stories. And Mm -hmm. I love that. So I thought it was Dipsia, but it's Dipsy. I have no idea. Okay. That's a good question. Maybe it is Dipsia. Maybe it's Dipsy. I don't know. I don't either. So I'm going to have to call somebody and be like, what is it? Yeah, we need to know. So if anyone's looking for it, it's spelled D-I-P-S-E-A. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Great. Uh, I- <laughs> Do you have anything to add to that? <laughs> any more pleasures? <laughs> any more joys? I guess the other pleasure is is around online dating. And I thought when we were talking last night, we were going to do, a, is it tarot or tarot? Because I've always said tarot. Okay. It Either. It depends okay. who I'm talking about. Two and then sometimes I just say it like a mix of both and then it just sounds messed up. So okay. it depends who you're who you're asking. Okay, so we're either gonna pull Scholars a tarot card. Usually say tarot, tarot, or a tarot <laughs> card. I I wanted to talk about some of the observations that I'm having from online dating, and I thought it would be fun if you could pull the tar- pull a tarot card about how about my future. Oh yes. <laughs> yeah, let's do that. So one thing that I'm noticing about online dating is that because there's a screen dividing us, the chemistry piece is really, really hard to to capture because you're not smelling the person. You're not really in their energy zone. You're kind of you're seeing them and you can see their body language and you can hear their tone and, you know, the content and stuff. But there's a whole piece missing, which I'm sure everyone can can say that is true in, you know, the difference between a, a in-person meeting and an online meeting and a public speaker on a stage and a speaker on a screen. Same thing with dating. So it's actually kind of a benefit that that's missing because then you can focus on all the non-chemical stuff that is actually really important, but gets clouded because you are in this chemical like cocktail that happens when you're attracted to somebody. So I'm getting more focused on like, is he on time? And is he a good communicator? And does he listen and remember things I said? And how does he feel about his job? And does he have long-term friendships? And things that actually really matter to me, but that can get kind of brushed away when you're just feeling like all the 
the turned on, like, oh, there's like a real connection here. And now you're all like buzzy and in a haze. Yeah. You can go, you can slip into fantasy mode so easily when you get that buzz going. And that's great, but that's projection. It's not like, it's not a complete picture and it's, it can lead you to make the same um, errors in judgment over and over and over again. Right. And we'd like to avoid that. Yeah. I have no experience with making the same. No, but people, (laughs) but people do. Listeners, Angela, listen. I've only made the same mistake 14 or 15 times in relationships. So I feel like I'm not in that category. (laughs) You're an ingenue. That's like, so yeah, it's totally fine. So I thought for the card, it would be just maybe that card can tell me my future with online dating. Is this a good direction for me? Is that clear enough? Yeah, it is. So I I pulled while you were talking and just like let it. That's how I tend to go. I'll let somebody talk for a while. Um, I pulled the Daughter of Swords. So I'm going to hold it up for you. You can post a picture. I'm pulling from the Wild Unknown Tarot, which is by Kim Krantz, who is amazing. What do you see on the card? Um, A wise person who has, um, let's see, who is sort of standing on a tightrope, like... Mm is this okay? Is this, is this, is this the direction to go? And then all those spots above the owl's head, because there's an owl standing on a sword with little dreamy spots or stars around its head. Those look like, um, like optimism and like uh, magic and possibility. Cool. How do you feel about magic and possibility in relation to dating? Scared. I mean, magic is, magic is probably what I've been operating from the whole time of like, oh, I can, I can ignore those red flags and just like magical thinking. Exactly. This person can fit into this expectation I have and I'll just pretend all those other things aren't there. Yeah. Yeah. So when you think about a tightrope, where, how does it feel? Is it scary? Is it exciting? Is it, is it interesting? Where does it go for you? Oh, it's terrifying because I'm afraid of heights. And so being on a tightrope is the last place I want to be. So the sword, the sword suit has to do with the intellect and the mind, right? So I'm hearing you applying judgment and, and judgment gets such a bad rap, right? Judgment. I like to insert the word discernment because judgment is really discernment. You're, you're inserting your ability to discern um, what's helpful versus not helpful for you. So that that tightrope that you're feeling that you saw, you know, like that you implied out of the visual of the sword feels to me like a really excellent image to hold on to. Um, that tightrope that you're feeling, while it feels scary, it's it's a good warning, right? Like you actually want to stay aware of your surroundings when you're on a tightrope. Tightrope walking can be incredibly safe, but you have to be aware of your surroundings and of the sensations in your body and the little like subtle perceptual changes. Right. But the owl has this innate wisdom, like innate. So you said right away, I see a wise person, right? The owl has innate wisdom and all of that, all of those little inspiration spots around. It feels like to me, you're seeing the fact that you have the capacity to discern well, to go on these dates and make good decisions for yourself. 
um, and that you're, but you're nervous that you'll slip into your, your magical thinking. And the thing that I'm noticing is there is, there's a, there's always like every card can be read in, in, in this tension, right? This, these two different ways. So there's a lot of potential in the daughter of swords. Um, it, Kim Krantz writes that um, sometimes this becomes a burden, this watching, this never stopping the watching and trying to figure it out. Um, so I'm I'm reading this card and thinking, your dating life is, it's new. It's in its infancy. And you're in the phase where it's it's good to be watchful, not just of the other people. You're not just discerning. You're discerning what's going on in you, right? So that feels that feels important. And yet you want to allow yourself to move through this phase into uh, enjoyment of it too. And just and trusting yourself. You said a wise person and that instantly for me brings to mind what you said last week about trusting yourself, about just knowing that what you feel, what you have sensed is actually real and you can trust yourself. So I think that the cards say that you can trust yourself. You just, you just need to stay aware. You don't, you, you can't go to sleep and just do what you've always done. Yeah. You need to that, actually stay present. Yeah. That's, that resonates. That's, thanks. You're welcome. Yeah. That was helpful. I love the cards because I don't see them as like, they're not as woo woo as all that. They're just a good jumping off point for any psychological discussion. Yeah. That's all. Do you want to pull a card for yourself? Yeah. Why not? Do you have a particular, yeah. What's your thing? I'm going to question my, um, my ability to stay present for the kids has been really challenged while I'm also taking on, I'm, I'm, I'm in school and I'm teaching and I'm building a business again and it's been challenged. So I want to ask how I could best show up for the kids in the, because teenagers actually need a lot of attention. They're like having toddlers in a way. How can I best show up for them? Because they don't need me to be helicoptering. I know that. What do they need? So, ooh, I got the six of pentacles. The six of pentacles is cool because it looks so pretty to me. It's um, it's like a branch. Um, in Kim Krantz's deck, she paints it as a branch of like, like, but it's like a thorny branch. Like each pentacle is like a little rose. So, my initial reaction to it is like excellent and beautiful and there's also something grounded because it's a it's a branch it's not you know it's organic as opposed to like just lines or whatever i'm gonna read what she wrote she wrote that the six of pentacles has to do with prosperity growth and generosity so i instantly i'm cast into right the pentacles about generosity it's it's been called the coins at times Mm -hmm. um I could totally feel into needing to be present with the kids in this generous way, showing up for them. Like, it's not about time. It's not about like amount of time, but showing up fully for them and, and being generous with my attention, which feels very, that feels like my most limited capacity right now is my attention. So 
noticing what they're doing, paying attention, and yeah, being generous with them in lots of ways. That feels good to me. It feels good because it's talking about that, like that season of harvesting, right? I have teenagers. It's strange. It's a strange part of parenting. Like you're both needed and not needed all at the same time. So yeah, I think I'll ruminate on the, on the idea of generosity this week. Yeah. That's a nice place to come from for that. Yeah. As a parent. I like that. We picked the right cards. We did. Isn't that, that's the magic. Yeah. That's the magic. Well, thanks. That was fun. Yeah. Uh, I wanted to talk about our fuck it buckets. It's funny because the thing that I pulled out from my fuck it bucket was um, burning myself out. So we don't have to get into that again because I feel like we've already talked about it. But it it was funny that that came out back out of the the bucket. It's like, oh, I guess I'm just really being asked to look at this (laughs) and make sure I'm just treating myself well and remembering that everything will get done. It will. doesn't have to happen today. And sometimes stuff just burns away, like burn out. Yeah. Maybe some of that stuff on the list will just like it. It's it feels important in the moment. Yeah. Doesn't mean it will be. Right? right. Yeah. Did you pull anything out? I did. <laughs> I I put this in last week and then I was hoping that because I put it in and I was very careful about taking everything out and putting it in at the bottom that I wouldn't choose it. So I wouldn't <laughs> have to say it. Um, and the universe had other plans. So, um, I pulled out trying to be someone Angela will like. Oh. Try, like that, but that's a thing, like specifically trying to be like you, it's it's a no-win situation. Because if I try to be someone you would like, I have to guess and pr- like project and imagine who you want me to be and then try to act like that's not at all how I want to show up in any of my relationships. But um but because we've been so intentional, I fall. I find myself falling into this little pattern of like, well, let me make sure I, I what exactly, rather than be myself. So, so I put it in the fuck it bucket, and apparently, I needed to be reminded of it again, like four <laughs> days later, on air. Is so there anything <laughs> in particular that you've caught yourself doing that didn't feel like you that you were doing because you thought I wanted it? It's not really particular. It, it's more like a sensation of, of, of not, sh- not being sure that I'm saying all the things, which you've called me out on before. Am I saying all the things or am I, am I holding back? And I don't hold back in most circumstances, but you have noticed in the past that I have held back and you have felt like maybe I thought you were fragile. And instead I'm like, oh no, I'm just terrified you won't like me. Mm-hmm. So I'm trying to, I'm trying to act like a nice person because I deep down really don't believe that I am. So I'm like, I'll act like a nice person and that will solve the problem. What we discovered last night is that we operate from two different core values or core personality types. I'm nice at the core and you're honest at the core. And so I guess because you see me as nice, you want to be nice too. But I love that you're honest at the core and that's the thing that I want you to be all the time. So when you are acting, yeah. And then when you are acting nice, I'm like, why is she being nice? Like, and it's, (laughs) and it's not that you're not nice. It's just a different, a different energy to it. Yeah. Yeah. Cause it's not it. I feel it. It's not authentically me to leave something unsaid or to, um, and you know, I've learned how to, how to make myself more palatable to audiences and how not to scare people. Um, 
And I did not know how to do that at all in my 20s or 30s. Like not at all. I was just like one person all the time and it was loud and brash and blunt and that was it. I've learned how to make myself palatable and now I think I only do it when I really like somebody and I'm like, I have to make sure that they like me. But it's been a few years. I think I need to set that down. Yeah. So, fuck it. (laughs) Good. I like this. I'm going to give you some chimes. Yay! That's a good one. Chimes. Yeah, the pair chimes. Um, So, we're going to talk about perfectionism soon. We're we're almost there. But the last thing I wanted to talk about was what we're working on right now. Because tonight I have a new class coming out. I decided I was going to make a series of classes, one a month called the pop-up talks series. And the first one is happening tonight and registration is uh, still open. So you can still grab a seat if you want to. And it's all about how to build confidence to speak on camera. As I mentioned earlier, this is, uh, I'd say one of the hardest topics and activities for people to do, whether it's going on Instagram live or, you know, on a Zoom meeting, talking into the camera or creating like a training video for your business. If this is something you struggle with, you may want to check out the class because I'm going to I'm going to pack so much information into an hour. And it's just it's an opportunity to learn about mindset and content and setup and subtitles and uploading and editing and all the things that stop people from making videos makes it all a lot easier and kind of walks you through the things that you need versus all the stuff that people like complicate this the whole activity with. And um, I'm hoping that by doing it, it'll give everyone less fear around it and just make the, yeah, make the experience more enjoyable because video is such an effective way to get your message out there and connect with your audience and promote what you're doing and show your personality that is like six, I think it's 600 times more effective than text, like writing just in. Yeah. So I think if anyone's interested, you can go to speakersisterhood.com and there's a link there to register. I'll also put a a link to it in the show notes. And I am certain that it will be spectacular because the thing I always take away from your teaching around public speaking in any format is that you always offer a framework. Like you always make it this very clear, do these things. Um, And so often when I have seen people speak on speaking, they, they stay in the abstract. It's this very abstract sort of pushing the birds out of the nest. And you just lay out a freaking system. Like here, let's just, how about if we just do it very like, here's the instructions, do it. I love that. So thanks. Yeah. What are you working on? Oh, I am working on systems right now. So it's boring. Um, and it's not frontward facing. Um, but I noticed that with all this busyness and I'm, I'm getting, I'm like, I'm booked, 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 which is awesome, but I want to smooth out all of my client experiences, all of my, and even my student experiences. So I'm working on my Dubsado, like my backend stuff and setting up all of the systems that need to like smooth everything out so that people are getting consistent communication from me. And that is reminding me that like that's one of my that's a really deeply held value for me that I show up for people and that I I I don't just drop off the face of the earth for two weeks at a time. I mean, a, a vacation's a vacation, but that like the people that are really hard to get a hold of, or you email them and then weeks later they get back to you, and then and then they're all super in, and then they disappear again, and it's just really hard on my nervous system. 
Like that makes me feel so much self-doubt. So I, that's not how I want to show up. So I think I've been doing a good job of it, but I've been doing that by like being on all the time. So instead I'm going to put some systems in place that'll make sure I'm not dropping balls and I'm not forgetting people and they feel taken care of because that's how I want people to feel. So it's not just a business thing. Like that's actually just how I think I can make a difference in the world is by showing up. I have all this extroverted energy, so I want to show up for people that way. Yeah. And that makes a beautiful experience for your customers. I think it's easier for them to trust you when they feel taken care of and they feel like you, you're you really responding to what they're asking for. And it's not just this like random like email here or phone call there. It's like there's a real system to all of this. And that shows your ability to organize and stay focused on taking care of them, which is yeah. what your business is about. Yeah, that's it. Like, I, I mean, I meditate on my clients throughout the week and I, I spend a lot of time focusing on like, how do I create an experience that's an arc for them? that's what I want I want them to feel held like that's my job I'm the container for a period of time and it's a lot of work but I think it's exactly what I'm suited for so this feels like a a, like a fit like a a really strong physical manifestation of that like Mm -hmm. how do I build the systems that support me in doing that well it's awesome it'll make your life so much easier too (laughs) yeah not a bad Um, thing (laughs) yeah so last thing is what we're reading. And I have to say, I have had no energy to read anything because every time I pick up a book, I read about a paragraph and then I fall asleep or think of something else I need to do. So I haven't really been reading, but I know you're always reading. So is there anything you want to share? I am. I I finally got um, the book Magnificent Sex, Lessons from Extraordinary Lovers. Um, it's by the eminent scholars, um, Peggy Kleinplatz and Dana Menard wrote this book and it came out a few months ago, I think. And I, it's just been like waiting for me. And Saturday night, I was so burned out that I was like, I'm just going to, I'm just going to enjoy this. And I read it for about an hour and a half. And yeah. So Peggy Kleinplatz has been putting together this phenomenal research for, oh, 15, 18 years maybe on optimal sexual experiences so we talk so much about harm reduction in the sexuality field. We talk about like, how do we feel better? How do we communicate basic needs? And this is the research that really outlines like what happens when we communicate really well about sex and how we can create not just good sex, but what they term in the book, magnificent sex. And it's it's beautiful and it's reaffirming of my work and it's awesome and that sounds really good. Maybe you can share some of that when we get to our, our, se- our sex series. Definitely. So All right. good. Awesome. So I thought for our conversation about perfectionism, we could talk about some of our tips that we help people with when it comes to our work and how perfectionism shows up in what we do. So I want to talk about it from the perspective of speaking. And I thought you could talk about it from the perspective of relationships. Maybe we could take turns and go back and forth. And I know in the past when I've mentioned feeling like I have to be a perfectionism, a perfectionist about things, you have said that is rooted in in white supremacy. And I was wondering if you could talk about that for a few minutes, because I I would not have made that leap because I haven't done as much work in that space as you have. And I think it's a fascinating discovery. Yeah. So I was introduced to this idea um, the first time by Bianca Loriano, um, but I know there are lots of scholars out there working on this. It is, it's a pretty simple idea. The The notion of perfectionism is rooted in the idea that our, our worth is tied to our productivity, right? And tied to not just how much we produce, but how perfect it is. 
So the the connection is actually really direct, very, very straightforward. If we stay in this um, productivity-centric culture, we value only what the human being's body is worth to produce and it oh it it fosters this deep sense of of oh I, like I lose my train of thought because I, I it's so I can feel it in my body I feel the way generations of people have judged other people so whether that be a person of a different skin color or it be a disabled person or it be someone who is of a different socioeconomic class how we how we hold standards that of perfection and of productivity that are so harmful and and totally strip us of our humanity and then we learn to internalize it and we take that and we like gobble it up and we internalize it and make it part of ourselves. So now we judge ourselves as well. So white supremacy doesn't just harm black people. It doesn't just harm BIPOC people. White supremacy harms all people in all bodies. And disengaging from that means rewriting the scripts in our, in our head and learning to treat our body minds differently. And it's hard work to like untangle this stuff. But um, I just always, I come back to the messages that I was taught um, in the first um, justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion classes that I took. The, they were to, to chill the fuck out some of the time, to actually rest. And this is work rooted in, in, the, in black scholars, in indigenous peoples, like their work around setting down these these standards that do not serve our humanity. It's hard, right, to, to set down a standard we've had our whole life. Mm-hmm. And I just said a whole bunch of words, and maybe it sounds like, maybe it sounds like too much to some people, but I think that's actually the insidious nature of white supremacy. We've taken it part and parcel. We have, it's just our cultural melu here. It's what we live in. It's the zeitgeist. It's, it's the water we swim in. So, we think it's normal, and there's a difference between normal and normalized, right? What Just because something is typical and happens all the time doesn't mean it's actually good for us. So, yeah, I think uprooting our perfectionism is, it can be, it doesn't have to be, it, but it can be a strong act of untangling ourselves from racist behaviors. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like not only perfectionism, but also productivity. Yeah. So yeah. Sure. looking They're tied tight together. Yeah. And I think like just as I've been talking about for the last hour, feeling burnt out, it's like how much of that is tied into an internalized expectation I have of having to be productive all the time and having to like prove my worth and show that I'm someone who's of value because I'm I'm putting so much out. And I don't know that that's actually a helpful perspective because it's not really making me the best I can be just as a human being on the planet. Like I can't show up with generosity for everybody because I'm showing up from a place of like, what if I'm not doing enough? And that's upsetting. You know, it's reminding me of the the argument between like push versus pull marketing. Like I, I feel like productivity and perfectionism have to do with like, let's push everything good we have out into the world. We'll make sure we're super visible and seen as being hyper-competent and being perfect and doing, getting the shit right. Like we just get it right versus just being good enough 
and and really like really really being it so the things we practice we practice well with virtuosity right we practice them to a level of of exceptionalism because we're just being not because we're striving for perfectionism but because we're we're allowing ourselves to be more ourselves more and more ourselves and when we do that um people are drawn to us in fact mm-hmm. and the right people are drawn to us but it's really hard to set down the idea that we need to like push out this this image of perfection. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's definitely an ongoing struggle for me is like I want to create something that people find and are excited about and get, you know, want to get behind. And then I also feel like I need to be everywhere. I need to show everybody everything they need to right. know. And it's like, ugh, that's just yeah. maddening. It's it's a lot. And and we can't and then it becomes difficult to know, am I showing up authentically or am I trying to be everything to everyone? And I that that's actually a tricky question. Can you even, can you be caught in your perfectionism and trying to be everything to everyone? And those two things now are going to be at war with each other inside of you yeah. because you, those two things can't really coexist. So now you have an internal battle where you're, you're probably getting in your own way and self-sabotaging your perfectionist techniques so that like... <laughs> That is just not going to be effective. Yeah. No wonder we're tired. No wonder. So there was Glennon Doyle had a a post on Instagram the other day where she showed a picture of an amethyst and she told a story about amethyst. And I wanted to share it because I think it's a really great framing for this conversation. She shared the story about being at the museum and learning about amethyst. So the museum volunteer says, do you know how amethysts are created? And her daughter says, how? And then the volunteer says, something goes wrong. Some kind of wonky thing happens to the quartz. Every time a quartz has a radiant color, it's because something that wasn't supposed to happen to quartz happened. And then Glennon says, oh, pick me, pick me. I'm her mom. Excuse me, amazing scientist person. But do you just tell my daughter that it's the mistake, the imperfection of the thing that creates the beauty of the thing? And then her daughter says, oh, my God, mom. And then <laughs> and Glennon says, this is outside of context of the conversation. You guys, that thing you think is is effing everything up is what's making you beautiful. Yeah. And I thought that was a really nice Glennon illustration. I know yeah. she always does. She always does. So yeah. yeah. Especially on this subject. Yeah. Well, when we when we are recovered perfectionists, we have something to say about it. And I have something interesting to say about that. Yeah. I really thought that I was not a perfectionist. Like I have only even started wrestling with that in the last six months because I'm good at accepting good enough, like really good at it. I, I'm like, I don't care if the kitchen floor is perfectly clean. And, um, if a conversation is, is only good enough, that's fine with me. But it shows up in other ways. Perfectionism is so insidious that it's taken me a long time to realize that, um, yeah, mine doesn't point outward so much. It points inward. It's a big inner judge. And it's, um, yeah, I've got a lot of work to do around it because I haven't called it this thing. So I haven't been paying attention to it for, well, 44 and a half years. So it's a while. <laughs> yeah, it definitely, it shows up in certain places in my life too. And one of them is uh, I, I have a deep fear of being seen as unreliable. So I try mm-hmm. so hard to be perfect at being reliable and someone that people can rely on. And 
on Monday night, we had something scheduled and we missed it. We both missed we it. We both missed it. Totally. And I didn't realize it until the next morning. And I texted you and I said, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. I missed that last night. And then you texted me back. You're like, I totally forgot about it too. Totally and, I, and my first thought, because we've been practicing being imperfect was, well, we did that imperfectly. And I didn't beat myself up about it for six hours and think, oh, Julia doesn't want to be my friend anymore. <laughs> that is a total win. Yeah, it was. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly it. When I noticed that I had missed it. So I saw it for me, it was only like five minutes after the thing was supposed to happen. I, I, I opened my calendar. I was like, huh, well, that's not happening right now. So, (laughs) oh, well, and I did, I felt the release that comes when, um, when I am able to be kind to myself and also to remember that I'm not the center of the universe and most like, most of the time people aren't paying attention. That's been a huge gift to me. Like people are not paying attention. It's fine. They're just not like, they're just not. I'm a huge fan of Whitney Cummings podcast. And she talks about this all the time. She's like, my therapist said to me, look, I have good news for you. And I have bad news for you. No one's thinking about you. Right. Right. (laughs) It's so true. Yeah. Yeah. I I think I have to say that to clients at least once a week. Like, yeah, sure. And it's so hard to remember because we are in there thinking about us. We're all in there self-absorbed doing the thing. And, you know, like the only breaks I get are sex and meditation from thinking about all of the things that are about me. And yeah. Yeah. Nobody else is thinking. And most people are, I, most of the people in my life are assuming goodwill. So if I make a mistake, they're they're assuming that it was a mistake. Yeah. And I have thought that they were assuming it was a genuine character flaw. Like that 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 was just going to color everything they have ne- ever known about me and everything they ever could know about me. Mm-hmm. So that's not a really that's not a very generous light to see the people in my life through. No. Like that's not that's not kind of me. Like I, do I really think that these people are that judgmental? And the answer is no, of course not. I just need to remember that they're humans too and they will give me grace. Yes. And I want to just make a connection between perfectionism and the desire to constantly be apologizing. I think these two things are highly related in that we're apologizing for our existence because we think we're, if we're not showing up perfectly, exactly how the person we're standing in front of us needs us to be, then we have to apologize for that because it's, it's it's not that. And one of the members of my Northampton Speaker Sisterhood Club gave a great speech about, this was Sandra Costello, give a shout out, gave us a huge uh, speech about not being sorry. And she influenced the dedication in the curriculum for this, for the secret life of speaking up and in, in Speaker Sisterhood. It's dedicated to women everywhere who are not sorry. And that really mm-hmm. comes from not apologizing for your existence or feeling like you have to be perfect in order to be worthy to have space in the world. And I really hope that anyone listening, if you find yourself apologizing a lot, know that that is connected to feeling like you have to show up a certain way. And we were talking last night about how in the last year, Plastic surgery numbers have been up more than ever because people are looking at themselves more often on Zoom and feeling like my face isn't perfect. My I have lines in my forehead. I have crow's feet. I need to get that taken care of. And it's like that just stems from that feeling like you have to show up perfect and so much pressure. And, and, so and the idea that somehow youth is perfect versus yeah. age. Like, what about the perfect wrinkles? I don't know. Right. Like, right. I have the perfect for that. I have like. Yeah. 
I, I, my lovers, eye wrinkles are like my favorite thing in the whole world. <laughs> like the right. Yeah. I don't know. I, I'm reminded of when, um, it's a really common thing in a, at a speaking club to like s- watch somebody get up in those first few speeches, especially and apologize several times, apologize for either over-preparing or under-preparing, mm-hmm. apologize for either bringing a prop or not bringing a prop, apologize for choosing something slightly off the the curriculum, apologizing for having emotions. Yeah, feeling's a big one. Every single time, right? Yeah. Like, I, I didn't realize how much it happened until I was sitting in club. And these were otherwise really confident-seeming women who I was like... if they felt to me like they were confident, but as soon as they would step up to the front of the room, they would often just have like, yeah, three, four five apologies. And it took, it took several tries like, right. I don't need to apologize for that. Yeah. Right. It's a great space to practice. Yeah. Not apologizing, especially for the emotions. Mm -hmm. I know nothing. I like more than seeing somebody have emotions while they're speaking. Oh, it is so common. I mean, even when we see people on TV, like accepting a, an award and they're crying and they're apologizing, it's like, oh, why is everybody apologizing for having feelings? This is crazy. If Dan Levy is listening, I hope he's thinking about this before the next time, like, because there's just more awards coming Shit's Creek's way, clearly. So, you know, just, I just I think, yeah, I think we modeling, should. modeling exceptional being there and not apologizing. That's yes. Right. And I appreciate you folding him into the episode i want every episode we every possibly episode. can yes <laughs> that's the goal until he comes on the show which he yeah. is coming on the show that's the goal yes yeah all right so want to share one way that perfectionism gets in the way in relationships yeah um okay i'm gonna talk about at the at the middle point so we have the perfectionism that shows up at the beginning that you were talking about earlier like you're trying to be somebody during a date, but then you get to the middle part of a relationship where things have settled down and (laughs) it is so strange to me how we can still be trying to be perfect for somebody who knows us in many ways better than we know ourselves. So it's like we have this little inner story going on where if we, um, if we act a certain way on date night, like that that somehow that will cover over all of the rest of our actions the the whole week. So it's strange. It's it's a weird look at perfectionism. Like I'll be perfect in this realm. Like I'll box this time off for my partner and I'll make everything perfect and it makes up for all the other time. And I think that the reason it relates to perfectionism for me is because it's it's overlooking the fact that our partners see us as humans. We're people. We we have ups and downs and highs and lows, and they don't need us to be perfect. They like us. If if you're in a healthy, yummy relationship, they like us because we're not perfect. We like they like us because we're amethyst. Because something has happened. Because we something's gone wrong, and that's what makes us beautiful. And so, if we if we strive to be perfect, like on date night. Or we strive to be perfect on an anniversary or something, we're we're missing the opportunity to stay in our humanness and enjoy the fact that our, our partner actually likely revels in some of the things that we really struggle with. So returning ourselves, like all of ourselves, like bringing all of ourselves to the party means setting down the idea that we have to show up a certain way and show it and instead just let ourselves be messy. And complicated, even on special nights, even when, you know, we're trying to set aside that time. 
you have a way to know when you're acting, trying to act perfect versus being yourself? So I've seen it happen a lot lately. People talk to me about date night. Date night's a big deal, right? Because we're, we're all trapped in our houses, right? So either you have a date night planned and you're finally getting out because you figured out a way to safely go out somewhere, or you've set aside the time and like the children are, are um, Velcroed to the walls in their room, whatever it is, whatever you got to do, and you have your date night. And so first off, the pressure is up, right? You've put all this pressure. And perfectionism is absolutely worse when you've got the pressure cooker going too. So then on top of that, you've decided that there needs to be a certain outcome and the outcome isn't a thing to happen. It's a feeling, but often the two people haven't actually agreed on the feeling they're going for. And so there's a huge problem. If you're trying to act perfectly aiming at one feeling and your partner is even showing up and trying to act perfectly going for another feeling, you are not going to have a perfect night. (laughs) You are not. So the best advice I have to to get past that is to decide to agree not on your activity, not on what's going to happen, because all that stuff can get messed up. Everything can go wrong. Agree on what the feeling is you're going after together. Yes. How do you want to feel? And just keep aiming at that so you can keep course correcting, like little teeny course corrections. Like, let's say all of a sudden it's snowing and you're like, oh, we really shouldn't leave the house because we don't know, like, who knows? Okay, a little course correction. So how could we, we were going to go listen to music. How could we bring some of that? What did we want? Oh, you know what? We wanted to feel close. We wanted to feel that sensation of being next to each other and enclosed by the sound that we were going to go listen to, even though we were going to be, we were just going to go sit alone in our car and listen to an outdoor conference, a com- you know, concert, but we were going to be enclosed and quiet and taking in, okay, cool, we can do that. We can replicate that because the feeling that we were going for was closeness, was the the stuff that comes with not talking. Like we were looking for the shared experience and the feeling of coming together and sort of synchronizing our breathing to the music or whatever. And that's just an example, but if we aim at a feeling and then and then we have to course correct, we can still get to that feeling together. And that's- heck, you still might have a fight and stuff could go off the rails and you could still forgive each other. <laughs> yeah, this is brilliant. And I, th- I like the idea of setting that expectation around feelings. And would you do an intermission like halfway through the date and say, okay, how are we doing? Totally, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, Ken is great at calling intermissions for, for us. Um, I, I forget in my own relationship, I'll forget to do that. Um, but he has a, a really nice pace to himself. So he will call an intermission. Um, it's not the word he uses for it, but it's totally what he's doing. And just say like, yeah, so is this where we planned to be headed? And when he does, almost universally, we have to make a course correction because we've gotten off the path because it's really easy to be distracted by um, a kid knocking on the door or a work thing popping into somebody's head or, and this happens a lot, one of us will have a memory, we'll share that memory or that feeling, and then we wind up off on a whole other trail of feelings. Mm -hmm. And those feelings are powerful and valid and I want to do that work. But coming back to the center of where we were aiming together is valuable because we don't always have to be doing like the work doesn't have to be hard all the time. It can be really joyful and fun. 
if we weren't talking about perfectionism and you shared this strategy as a, an approach for date night, I don't think I would have made the connection between the two. But as we're talking about it, I'm realizing how important it is to recognize that by setting an expectation for a feeling, you can let go of the desire to try to be perfect and just go in, feel into that feeling that you're trying to create with your partner. And that sounds really fun. And attunement is a real thing. Like we have to learn how to attune to our partner, especially if we weren't well attuned to as a child. So if we didn't have parents who were great at attuning to us, and that just means like getting in sync with our feelings, um, with our, our affect, we might struggle with that. So this can just be practice, like just, just practice attuning to each other. And if, if it doesn't go well, you know, practice is great. Like we practice so many other things, but we forget to practice being in our relationships. Mm-hmm. I want to add that right now I'm having a, a feeling like I need to apologize. <laughs> so okay. I have to laugh about it. Yeah. I feel like I want to apologize that this episode is so long. Oh, well, it is. It is long. You're right. But what's wrong with that? It's People actually a great buttons. episode. Yeah, they do. It's I, it's cool. They are <laughs> empowered to their pause button. It's totally fine. So funny. We empower. Nicole, we're we taking empower up too much time. Permission. Yeah, take 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 a break. All right, let me go into one thing that stops people from speaking when it comes yeah. to perfectionism. One is saying no to opportunities, speaking opportunities, because you think you don't know enough about the subject or you don't feel confident enough as a speaker. I would say this is one of these are the two biggest reasons that people don't speak on stage is I'm not a good enough speaker. I don't know enough about the topic. And I have to just say, like, have you ever been to a conference and you see a speaker on stage, you walk out of the room and you go, that speaker was technically perfect. That that speaker knew exactly how to present all their information perfectly. Um, yeah. <laughs> No, nobody's looking for that. They're actually looking for a beautiful story that the the speaker shares about their life or a personality trait that stands out that makes them unique. Um, Seeing someone's humor come through, loving their perspective on a subject. Like these are the things that an audience loves to see because they're seeing their humanity. And when you go into the that that speaking experience thinking I have to be uh, memorize my whole entire speech and I need to make sure I hit all my points and I need to make sure I know everything on the subject. It's maddening. It's also unnecessary and it takes all the joy out of the, the process. And- I totally agree. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that killed my TEDx experience for me. It was right. terrible. I was, I was forced to memorize my speech. So, and anybody who's watched it, um, that's not me. Like I, I, well, who you're hearing now is me. And instead I had, you know, a month of lead up of, of misery and fear. And then I had moments on stage where I was afraid that I had lost my train and I wouldn't be able to get back on it. And that was terrifying. I am never afraid when I'm speaking off the cuff. Never. I give speeches without notes and hit my time perfectly all the time. And that was the most terrifying speaking engagement of my life. Mm -hmm. So yeah, like, Ditch the perfection and go for the real. It's so much, ugh, yeah. Yeah, people <laughs> people want to see your authentic self. I mean, I know that that's like the most overused cliche term at this time, but it's actually really important that you show up as a person who maybe isn't a perfect speaker, but that you have information to share. And nobody wants 
a, a speech with a hundred facts about a subject, boil it down to three or four things and just make sure that you really focus on those topics in a way that drives the point home to your audience. You don't have to know everything about a subject. And if you do Q&A at the end of a talk and an audience member asks you a question you don't know the answer to, you can say those three words that actually helps people trust you more. The three words, I don't know, are very, are very powerful because no one is expecting you to know everything about an entire subject. It's impossible. Yeah. And and I am actually excited when I'm asked a question I don't know the answer to because I can say, come up afterwards and give me your email address and I'll research it and get back to you. And it gives me an opportunity to learn something new that I didn't know before. And I'm not standing up there feeling embarrassed because I don't know where to go with that. It's like, hey, we've hit on a subject I haven't even thought of before. I'm sure there's information about it out there, but... So I want to reinforce that if if you're given an, op an opportunity to speak on stage or to present at a virtual conference and you aren't feeling like you're an expert yet, that's okay. You don't have to be an expert. You can share what you do know about the subject, share your experiences, share what you've seen. And just that, just being one step ahead of the audience is enough. And yeah. no one's expecting you to be a perfect speaker. They're expecting you to show up as yourself to present what you know. And you know what's underused? So if you don't feel like you're an expert and you're not and you're overwhelmed by a by an an offer to engage, ask for a smaller time spot. Like maybe you want to talk on the subject for 10 or 15 minutes, which is actually people's real attention span anyways, so that you don't feel like, oh my gosh, I have to prepare a 50-minute presentation. Like I have gotten the most powerful presentations ever have been like, yeah, 15 minutes of just a person really sharing like the story and their point. <laughs> and yeah. that's so powerful. And maybe so maybe you turn something into a panel discussion where three people do that and, and you can like take it down a notch and allow yourself to be real because that showing up and trying to be all perfect is not. I don't know. There's a lot of information on the Internet. We don't actually need more perfect. Right, right. And I think you bring up a good point about the panels. If anyone were to ask me what's my favorite way to present, I would I would do a panel all day, yes. all day, or giving a, an hour-long uh -huh. presentation. I think it's more interesting for the audience. And it's also more fun because you get to just be in the experience and you're, you're present with it. So totally. for anyone who's new to speaking, that's a great way to get started is to be on a panel because you can speak in short bursts. And it feels yep. like there's a lot less pressure. Yep. And it's converse, there's a conversational aspect that can happen. It doesn't always, but you can encourage it and that can help. I mean, it's, and it can foster a, an interdisciplinary, transdisciplinary um, conversation, like whoever you're talking with, even if the subjects don't feel like they, I mean, you and I are always combining two topics that don't feel like they're related and yeah. we bring them together anyways. Yeah. That's the third thing. And it's super important. Yeah. Thing. And I want to add that if there's a conference that you hope to speak at and you weren't asked to speak or you submitted a, a, an application and they didn't approve it, you can always contact the conference organizer and say, can I recommend we do a panel on this subject and I can be one of your panelists and I have a couple other people in mind who could also serve on the panel. You're now helping them do their job and you're filling in time where maybe they had a speaker who canceled or they didn't have something in that slot and they may say yes and now you've booked yourself a speaking gig and you're doing something that that's less pressure than having a whole workshop that you need to fill. Totally. Yeah. Pro tip. So you have another, <laughs> another way that perfectionism gets in the way in relationships? Well, I think the other one is in trying to be something we're not, you know, I, it, there are these really clearly defined boxes for what, um, oh God. Yeah. What, 
what anyone is supposed to show up as. So I'm I'm instantly cast into um, all of this gendered language. Like, how do I show up as like the perfect woman? How do I show up as the perfect man? And first off, I want to just tear off the gender labels and say, okay, we're all messed up about gender anyways. So we need, that's a bigger conversation. So for a second, I'm going to set that aside and say, we each have this image of who is wantable, right? And now it's reinforced by Instagram and swiping. And I'm not down on social media. I love social media, but it does reinforce this idea that we have to be something specific, something very, very perfect and airbrushed at feeling in order to be wanted and wantable. And whether you are currently dating or you're in a relationship, these things can affect you. Mm-hmm. And I have found a really wonderful trick to completely change how I relate to my body and how I relate to being showing up and, and like being wantable. I'm not sure what else. Yeah, wantable. Desirable sounds even too much. Just wantable. Um because I do believe I'm lovable, but I don't always believe I'm wantable. And what I did was start, I started intentionally shifting who I was following on all of my social media, shifting it over. So I have larger bodies and, and varied bodies, disabled bodies, and all of these different bodies to look at. And, and I stopped following people who were striving for perfection. Even some people who I know, in fact, are not, and, and really don't want to have to hold that image up, but they're still doing it on their social media. I just, you know, I muted those folks so that I could focus on the people who are showing up, not imperfectly, they're showing up as them, perfectly them, exactly who they are. And when I did that, um, well, that was two years ago. I am like an entirely different person from then. Like my body image completely changed. I got comfortable in my skin again. Um, I, I can interact with people who I'm I'm dating in a different way. I interact with my partner in a different way. I feel wantable in a way that I have not. And it took a long time because the image is everywhere, right? We, we're just surrounded by images of unobtainable perfection. And then we imagine that our partners want that. And they may be looking at porn or just sexualized images or whatever. And then we stumble onto that and we're like, do they want that? I can't measure up to that. And we get this in our heads. And if you've ever felt that way, like you can't measure up to what your partner wants, I encourage you to shift what you're looking at and have a conversation about shifting what you look at together or what they look at because changing what we're surrounding ourselves with can change our mind about what perfection is. Like, the Greek gods are a good way to look at perfection. Each of them is a freaking disaster, right? Like Dionysus is getting people drunk constantly and the main ads that follow him are tearing people to shreds and Zeus is just killing anybody he wants randomly and Apollo's so mad he wants to kill his baby brother and his baby brother's stealing things right out of the womb. They're just all a mess, right? They're each perfect. They're perfect in their one-sidedness and they're in their mess. And I love that example. Like you're, you have your unique perfection and that, that will come through in your relationships. If you can, if you can start accepting it in yourself, it's, it's a strange relationship to perfection. Like I don't actually want to let go of the word entirely because the word perfect, like messes are perfect. I love this. So, so by, <laughs> oh yeah, I'm so, I see what you're saying by saying like the way that I am right now, 
is perfect. Yeah. Is, is empowering versus saying like, I'm doing things imperfectly to try to remove the pressure of being perfect, but you're actually just accepting that you are who you yeah. want to be and what you want to look like. Yeah. I think it's a, it's a different way of looking at perfection, right? Yeah. Like we, we have it, we have this, we, oh, it's an objective versus a subjective experience. So if I say there is an objective measurable version of perfect and I need to be that, that is white supremacy. It's hyper masculinity. It's the patriarchy. That is like this. I just the notion that there somehow is an objective standard of perfect. But if we release that and we say, actually, what there is, is a subject, a subjective experience that I have of showing up fully myself and being so much myself that no one else could possibly be like me. So how could I ever be compared to anyone else? I can only ever stand next to other people. That kind of perfect I'm here for. Totally. Me too. Yeah. That sounds really good. I want to make that a sound bite. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the second thing that I want to share about becoming a speaker and trying not to be perfect at it is what you talked about earlier, which is not being afraid of injecting feelings into your talk. And this is probably the number one thing that I see women and men apologize for on stage. Anytime there is an emotion that's showed that goes beyond confidence and humor and just, you know, sort of presenting yourself as someone who has authority, it's perceived as the wrong way to do it. And I would say there's no one in the audience who is viewing a speaker on stage or on the computer who is showing real vulnerability, who's showing real feelings that are emerging from the topic, who's saying, I can't believe they're doing that right now. Right. <laughs> I've never met anyone who has said that. It's like, wow, that's so touching that they're so moved by this, that they're willing to show that side of them to us. Yeah. And it's such a special gift that you give the audience when you go there, that it's a rare thing to experience seeing someone just in that state. So to apologize for it really dampens the gift. Yeah. And I want to encourage anyone who speaks, who, who, who gets the opportunity to be in front of others and express things they care about to not be afraid to go there. If yeah. a tear shows up, do not apologize for it. Let it be there. Because everybody is going to be hanging on that moment because it's so real and there's so few of them. Right. And I, I want to just change that whole experience for people because it's really, it's a valuable part of public speaking. And it's a valuable part of that connection that can happen when you don't shy away from it. There was a great example of that at the TEDx that I presented at. Elizabeth uh, Pryor Studer showed up and gave an amazing talk on the N-word and on, like, how do you handle the N-word in the classroom? Um, Elizabeth is a professor at Smith and, and just had a brilliant talk. But in the middle of it, you, you felt it. And I, 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 the whole room felt it, I think. We'd, like, there was this, uh, this electric moment where we realized that she wasn't speaking about a topic. She was speaking the topic. She was saying the things that don't get said. And I have all the hairs on my arms are standing up just thinking about it. She was saying what doesn't get said and talking about how it had impacted her. And um, that talk has I, well over, I think it has over a million views now. Um, it's, it's so powerful to watch her experience the emotion 
and you realize this is so real, so palpable. Um, and I had seen her give the speech already several times in practice. That was the best version. I know she like a couple of lines wound up changing and things like that. But that was the most powerful, powerful version because she was right there in it. And you yeah. could feel it. It was amazing. I love it. What's your last thing that gets in the way? Okay. It's just this. There is no such thing as perfect sex. <laughs> There's just not. There just isn't. There's no such. So I actually said I was talking about the book Magnificent Sex. There's no such thing as the right kind of sex. There's no such thing as the perfect sex. Um, how you like to have sex is great, whether you like to have sex or not. And if you don't like to have sex, that's fine. Like there are so many ways to interact physically with our partners and it's a weird, like, co competitive thing we do where we're trying to, like, have, like, the best sex. It's a very, like, Cosmo quiz. How, are you having the hottest sex? Yeah, right? yeah. Yeah, like, what, what is this nonsense? <laughs> it's, it's, just, it's just nonsense. And every sex educator I know has, has the same soapbox. Like, no, this is not a thing. The best sex is the sex you want to have when you want to have it if you want to have it. Simple as that. And to have great sex... Talk about it. Your sex gets better when you talk about it. So rather than aiming for something, again, external, some external judge of what perfect would be, or even aiming at some perfected fantasy that you've got in your head, because fantasies are awesome, but often we will get fixated on a, on a fantasy that we can't make happen exactly the way we want it to happen. Maybe we have, I mean, the most common fantasy in the U.S., um, Justin Lemeler's research clearly shows it's group sex. That can be hard to arrange, right? So maybe that fantasy can't be acted out exactly the way you want it to be. And that doesn't mean you can't have super wonderful, amazing sex. Perfect isn't in the details. Perfect is actually in the, ex the experience of it itself. So, yeah. Just, like, write perfect sex on a piece of paper, burn it, and be done. <laughs> <laughs> Unless it's your definition of perfect sex. It's, yeah. I've definitely had that. I mean, come on. Find out what you really want, and then you can have it. But it's got to be yours. You're right. Yeah. Totally yours. Yeah. So I'm hearing in, in a lot of your points that it's about communication. It's about speaking up and connecting mm -hmm. over the things that you think are supposed to be a certain way and then figuring out what, what you want them to be. Right. And being courageous in your speaking. You know, I think you always talk about how people are afraid to do public speaking, and fear always comes up, right? But also... Um, people are afraid to talk up in bed. People are afraid to talk up with a partner that they've known a long time. They're afraid to be themselves with a partner they just met. So what do we do to, to get over that? And the first thing we could do is set down the idea that there's an objective, perfect standard. If we set that down and then we just say the uncomfortable thing, the first uncomfortable, we don't have to have a whole speech prepared. The first uncomfortable thing. I often will have people practice the first sentence they need to say. Just practice that like four or five times. Say it out loud so that when you say it to your partner, you don't like just melt and not say the thing. Like you start the sentence and it doesn't come out. Practice the first sentence. The rest of it will happen. You'll, you'll figure out as you go through the conversation where it needs to go because you aren't alone in the conversation. It, it's going to co-create, right? So set down the idea that you need to measure your relationship by anybody else's. Mm -hmm. It's yours. Yeah. That just sounds empowering and 
juicy. You know, it's like, oh, I get to explore this however I want. I don't have to be in this thing that's predetermined for me. Taking the power back. The last point I wanted to make, it it kind of is aligned with what you were talking about earlier, is uh, one thing that stops people from speaking on stage is not wanting to speak because you don't like the way you look and your body isn't perfect. And the advice I always give people who kind of have that objection is wear clothes that makes you feel good. You don't have to wear a suit. Like there's no dress code for the stage or for, you know, presenting. You don't have to look a certain way. What's most important is that you feel good and you feel confident in in what you've put on. And I remember my first speaking engagement after uh, having Max, you know, I was like, two months postpartum and I was presenting actually at the hospital like a building over from where I delivered him so I was like oh this is like really awkward (laughs) Um, (laughs) too soon soon. and I was wearing clothes that I had uh, before I was pregnant like pre-pregnancy clothing I wasn't this was my first time not wearing maternity clothes or basically like walking around my house in a bra and underwear because I was just like breastfeeding and sleeping and hanging out with a baby 24 7 and so I got there and my jeans were tight because I had a baby (laughs) and I was wearing a shirt that I would have worn a year and a half earlier and I just felt so uncomfortable because I knew that my body was different now and I was trying to present myself in the way that I would have before with a different body. And the whole time I was presenting, I was thinking about my body. And like, there was a time when I had to turn around and write on the whiteboard and I was like, oh my God, my butt looks so big right now and everyone's looking at it. (laughs) It was like, I created this whole uh, story about like my body being a problem that night because it was different from how it was before. And I talked to so many women who feel like if I was just 10 pounds lighter, I would feel confident giving this speech. Mm. And if I, yeah. And it's like, mm-hmm. there's no <laughs> like melting. I'm melting. Yeah. Ah. yeah. And I want to just be here to say that you being a speaker, you sharing your message, you bringing your essence to the world is not about your size. And it's not about, being a certain way like you were just saying it's about like loving your body and showing up with it as part of your your toolkit you know it's like it's it's going to help to share what you care about it's going to help you share your words and your energy and if you own it and you love it and you're there with it everyone else is going to love it too and after that first speaking engagement after like on maternity leave I was like I don't want to do that to to myself again that was really the first time that that ever happened to me and the next presentation I wore something totally different that just felt good and made me feel like okay I can show up in my body and not be worried the whole time (laughs) like because I love my body I just made a person I just made a whole person you did you made a whole person and your body has survived all of these years yeah like that is enough if anybody needs a trophy this week your body survived all these years way to go nailed it totally like Bodies are going to change. I just, I wish that that was the primary thing that everyone grew up with. I wish I had, I wish everyone, bodies are going to change. That is the only, like that is up there with death and taxes. That's, that's it. That's all there is for, for reality. To be able to accept that, like all the way in the center changes everything. I, somebody, somebody recently gave me such a slap back. That relates to that somebody. So um, I recently lost weight um, and I gave my TEDx at the heaviest I've ever been. 
um, in 2019. Um, and I, they said to me, oh, are you disappointed that like that that's the moment that's captured? I... <laughs> I was glad we were in Zoom space because I might have come at them. I was really angry because it was, well, one, it was inappropriate to comment on. Yeah. Like, what, like, just, like, just no. But, but the thing is, I'm open to talking about my body. So if people wanted to have that conversation, that if they had asked me, like, well, how did it feel to, to give a speech at a heavier weight than you were used to being? And how does it feel not to? I'm, I would have engaged in that conversation, but instead it was, it, there was critical judgment. There was an objective beauty standard applied to me that I did not consent to. And it was just wrong. I felt great on the stage. I loved how I looked on the stage. I was super proud of myself. And earlier that day, I had done a workout where I was doing pull-ups and pistols. So screw that. Like I, my body was doing everything I had asked it for and more. And all that person saw was that I was wearing a size 16. That's wow. all they saw. Wow. And they didn't see my research. They didn't see how hard I had worked on it. And it, it reminded me that, in fact, it wasn't about me. What they saw was their own terror that their body was changing. And I, I feel that I, I have a lot of compassion for it because I, <laughs> I get it. But our bodies change Show up as you are right now. I swear to God, if we all just did that, we would outnumber the people who believe that there is an objective beauty standard. I know they exist. I know you've read the comment sections. Don't read those. (laughs) Those people do exist, but we would outnumber them and we would be beautiful each in our own ways. And then our messages would be heard loud and clear. Yeah. I think that's a good place to end unless you have any other tips you wanted to share. No, that's good. All right. Well, Thanks, everyone, for going on this journey with us today. It was a journey. We went on. (laughs) Thank you, everybody. (laughs) Yeah, we'll see you next week. Jolie and I hope you love listening as much as we love making this show. If so, tell us by leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or share it with a friend. Claim the Stage is a production of Speaker Sisterhood and is produced in the Glitter Closet in Holyoke, Massachusetts. Music is composed by Kelly Vogel of Sound Passage. All right, that does it for us this week. Until next time, stop waiting, start creating. Bye for now.